Hey everyone, this is Daniel. Just wanted to pop in here really quickly before the episode starts to wish a hearty Mazaltov and congratulations to Harry and Jess on the birth of their new baby girl, Amy Charlotte. We're very, very happy for them and super excited for this next chapter in their lives. As I mentioned last episode, we will be taking a short hiatus to kind of record a bunch of new episodes and we'll come back in a little bit. But stay tuned for our return and check out our past episodes and have a good one. Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And joining me as always... My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, video editor. And I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your podcast with somebody, you want the rest of your podcast to start as soon as possible. Let's go for it. Let's do it, Harry, shall we? Let's bring in our guest today, who is a writer who lives in Brooklyn, loves saturated color, and believes in queer possibility. She holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Maryland and is the recipient of fellowships from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities, Vermont Studio Center, and a 2020 Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award. She's the co-host of Pete's Reading Series in Brooklyn, and her debut novel, City of Laughter, is available January 16th. Tamim Fruchter, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast to discuss When Harry Met Sally from 1989, directed by Rob Reiner, uh, written by Nora Ephron. We're really excited to discuss this one. This is a great film. I'm waiting... Uh, Never mind. I was going to make a Harry when Harry met Daniel joke, but I feel like maybe it's probably best to ditch that one and just ask the questions, uh, you know, stick I, to the script. I think, yeah, I honestly, I think our audience was expecting that from you, that, that at least for your intro. That was kind of the direction, I think. But good for you. You didn't take the obvious route. I like it. Yeah. You, you know. didn't ask it. I was going to ask it. So thank you. <laughs> OK, yeah. yeah. It's for funny because sure. when when I when while I'm editing some of these episodes and like I don't know if this happens to you, Daniel, but like I hear you say my name Harry and all of a sudden I like jump as if you're mm -hmm. talking to me, but I'm just listening back to an edit. Uh -huh. And I think it's gonna happen again as you kind of go through the title of this movie or talk about the characters. You're gonna say something and I'm gonna try to remember that's not me. That's Billy right. Crystal. Right. Which not right as normal. Yeah, I'll try to say Harry Burns. I mean, last episode we had a guest on whose name was Daniel. So Staying now it's now it's kind of the the reverse. Um to me, I wanted to ask you a question. You know, uh, we we talked about a, a few movies, but you ultimately settled on When Harry Met Sally. So I wanted to ask, you know, um, why did you pick When Harry Met Sally? So many reasons. The movie, I mean, first of all, just the old couples. Like, let's just start with the old couples mm -hmm. that are sort of the interstitial scenes in that film. Obviously, they are not all literally Jewish. But the vibe of those little moments, I can't think of anything that's more Jewish. Um, and that sort of nestled into the deep, deep New York vibes of the movie alongside Billy Crystal and alongside just the constant sparring and arguing and quipping and Jewish coded humor that happens throughout the movie. Like... It just feels like a deeply Jewish movie and also a deeply Jewish movie that feels formative to my own sensibility. So I was delighted to talk about it with you guys. I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. It was my first time seeing the movie and I couldn't agree with you more that this is one. Oh, I loved it, by the way, for the record. It, it was such a delight. But I couldn't agree with you more that this is a movie that it's so obviously Jewish without featuring any explicit Jewishness in this. I'm not spoiling our conversation, but like. 
I don't think there's a single, you know, throwaway we can point to, you know, maybe this could have been, you know, some Jewish aspect. But at the same time, you know, it didn't, it wasn't hard for me to kind of Google, like, is when Harry met Sally Jewish? And over and over, I saw, you know, it has Jewish sensibility, Jewish humor, Jewish. And I'm really excited for us to kind of get into what that means, because it's something that was so obvious to us. But, you know, how we put that into words and how we kind of come up with, you know, the roots of where that comes from, I think that's going to make for a really interesting conversation. So in our film, we have a couple of writers and on our podcast today, we have a writer. See what I did there? You know, you mentioned before, like via email, that there is some connection to City of Laughter and When Harry Met Sally. Could you kind of explain to us without, you know, spoiling too much, you know, what the connection is? I'm very curious. Of course. Yeah. I mean, like I said, When Harry Met Sally is the kind of film that sort of shaped my sensibilities. So, you know, I don't shy away from romance and sentimentality, though I think it is often seasoned by, you know, a, a good Jewish bit of like complaining and anxiety and death obsession. Um, so my book is is quite the same. There's a lot of romance, both little R and big R romance, and there's a lot of death obsession as well. Um, and the main, one of the main characters is a 30, early thirties woman, queer woman named Shiva and her father, um, dies at the beginning of the book and his, you know, there's one scene where she is celebrating her father's first, um, posthumous birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, she's marking that evening and to do that, she invites over her best friend, Levi, and they watch When Harry Met Sally because Whoa. her father was um, a film a film person, a filmmaker, and his Nora Ephron was one of his favorite wow awesome. favorite filmmakers. And I, I I just I wanted that tribute directly in there because I just feel so um, connected to the the sort of Nora Ephron sensibility of like romance and banter. And I think that, you know, I, I try to bring some of that into my writing too. There's a lot of good Nora Ephron banter in this movie and a lot of back and forth. And we can talk a little bit about it more in the context corner, but that's a, I feel like that's a very good like frame for how to like approach the discussion and get like your sort of your perspective on, on the film as someone who's like a hugely inspired by it, you know, and like, as you said, it informs you, I guess you wear, you know, Harry met Sally colored glasses sometimes and in, in writing and in life as I think we all should. I feel like, you know, I want to have friendships like that, like the way that they talk and the way that they. Oh, I love it. So good. I mean, yeah, you're, you're obviously the two of you aren't the only ones like this is one of the most inspirational movies in terms of just rom coms for the next. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we're still kind of influenced by a lot of the banter and the lightheartedness and even kind of structurally the way that this completely upended and inspired the rest of the genre. So I, I think you're in good company there in terms of, you know, taking a lot of inspiration from this. Harry, before we get too far, could we let everyone know what the film is about technically? Yeah, sure. So uh, according to the IMDb summary, uh, the movie is about Harry and Sally have known each other for years and are very good friends, but they fear sex would ruin the friendship. That's it. That's it. That's it. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. No more. You're waiting for me to go on. No, I, and I, then a whole movie. Yeah. Uh, it, it invites you to kind of watch the movie to get kind of the details yeah. of it but okay but yeah that, that's pretty much it that's pretty much it and I actually think that works for this movie and I'll get into this more later but this is a movie that like is very 
I, I'm trying to think of the right words to describe it, but it's 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 trying to be kind of this like central, like it's a it's addressing these questions of relationships and sex mm-hmm. and what love looks like head on almost explicitly. Like this isn't a movie that's you know burying its kind of themes in like a love story. Like of course it's it's about this love story, but the characters kind of say explicitly through conversations we follow, you know, throughout different years, exactly almost principles. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Just Mm. like principles of love and of friendship. And this is a movie that almost knew it was going to be inspirational to the effect of like, this is what people are going to model the way they think about friendships and relationships. And people Mm -hmm. are going to take from this, like, it's not trying to code that in there. So I think, you know, in that short description, kind of outlining, you know, that that is, yes, this fundamental kind of tension between friendship, relationship, sex, kind of how that changes things. That that is fitting with what the movie is similarly trying to convey as its like principle and explicit theme, you know, throughout. Yeah, I think that that totally makes sense. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of context on the film if that works. So we have our uh, just. I'll go through the cast really quick. We have uh, Billy Crystal starring as Harry Burns, Meg Ryan as Sally Albright, Carrie Fisher as Marie, and Bruno Kirby as Jess. The film sort of came about when Rob Reiner. Um, you know, met up with Nora Ephron at the Russian Tea Room and they were pitching ideas back and forth. And Rob Reiner was like newly single, you know, living life as a single man after being divorced from Penny Marshall. And they were going back forth and back and forth on ideas. And, you know, Nora Ephron was just kind of listening to him, give his perspective of what it's like to be a single guy in New York City. And a lot of, you know, according to Rob Reiner, he wanted to kind of model, you know, uh, when Harry Met Sally, it's sort of like a, there's this uh, movie called, um, an Ingmar Bergman movie called Scenes from a Marriage. He kind of wanted this to be sort of like scenes from a friendship. So it's kind of just like day-to-day life of friends talking about relationships, talking about single guys. And, you know, Reiner added his perspective as a single guy. And then Nora Ephron, um, you know, brought what it's like to be, you know, a woman and 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 a single woman and, and things like that, which Rob Reiner had very little perspective on and so it was good to sort of balance the two out and and be able to like equal things out in, in good measure they they you know i think there were alternate titles like how we met how they met harry this is sally things like that um and ultimately i think there was even a contest on set of like they asked the cast and crew to like suggest names and the, the one who uh would suggest a name like the winning name would win a prize ultimately i think they landed on when harry met sally dot 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 i feel like uh, just some fun trivia. Let's see. There's that iconic, you know, four-person scene where they have uh, Harry, Sally, Jess, and Marie on the phone together. That uh, scene took 61 takes to film, uh, and they shot it in three different sound stages. Uh, the film cost 14 and a half million dollars and grossed 92.8 million dollars. Um, as far as some other context, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think that's all we need, sort of, to kind of get into it. A lot of it was improvised. You'll sort of notice that like the Pictionary scene or win, lose or draw scene, that whole thing was improvised. There was a couple other famous scenes that we can talk about. Um, but I think everyone had a hand in improvising. I think the, one of the most iconic lines, according to AFI, was Rob Reiner's mom who said, I'll have what she's having. Yeah, y'all are nodding your heads. It sounds like this is very well established, uh, you know, well established lore for fans of the film. Um, but I think that's about it for my context corner. Do you want to take a quick break? We'll come back and we'll kind of dive into some of the films, themes, depictions of fun stuff, and we'll get back into it. But yeah, we'll be right back.
The name's Harry Dolowich from New York City, and I'd like you to join me with the help of an incredible cast of actors like Richard Kind, Louis Black, Melanie Linsky, and Bobby Cannavale for the unbelievable true story of how I rose from nothing to something after taking over the one business the mafia was too blind to see, the chocolate syrup business. So come slurp up the first 10 fizzy installments of King of the Egg Cream, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Tamim Fruchter to talk about When Harry Met Sally. Harry, I'm going to toss it over to you to kick it off. So I wanted to start by what I mentioned earlier, kind of defining the Jewish sensibility. You know, what is it about this movie? And it's neuroses and it's banter. And, you know, what kind of gives it that Jewish feel? And, you know, to kind of get us started, I'm going to cheat a little bit because Nora Ephron actually has a quote talking about this movie. Apparently, this was something she used to say when she was promoting it. And I actually think it puts into very clear and definable terms, you know, what she thought of as, you know, a Jewish rom-com versus, you know, what otherwise would have been a more Christian one. And uh, hopefully that can help us. And and I want to see actually if everyone here agrees with that take, if that fits or, you know, if there's more nuance to it. But basically she was quoted as saying, you know, Christian and Jewish romantic comedies differ. You know, she said external forces separate lovers in the former and the Christian ones, while characters and neuroses obstruct happiness in the latter. And I think that I think we're all nodding because I actually read that and I was like that. That's a really interesting take. But I wanted to hear, you know, if the two of you agree with that, if you see that in this movie and, you know, what more or less there could be to kind of the Jewishness, you know, at least inherently to this movie that that was so obvious to us when we all watched it. Yeah, I I mean, that is great. I don't think I had read that. That's that feels 100 percent right on because, I mean, it is such a comedy of these two personalities that are such great foils to one another and there really aren't that many external barriers to them being together i mean part of it is just harry's stubbornness about his rules for a while right you know i mean it's over the course of 12 years but at some point he's like you know this just can't happen like we can't like sex is off the table because we're friends um so it's just, yeah, it's it's neuroses, it's anxieties, it's stubbornness, it's these rules. Um, and Sally is also, of course, quite stubborn in in all of her own ways. Um, but it almost seems like, you know, I always think of this film as like New York just feels like this benevolent, like nest that is sort of just saying like, come on already, you guys. And like, they're just not they they just won't and all their friends are like you guys do it already and they you exactly know, they I, do, you res- do it but they don't right do. well right even yeah. that honestly is not enough because I, I was surprised how early they kind of get together relative to the movie i'm like there's a half hour left like this should <laughs> right, be a big right, plot. Right. Like, and they still find ways to kind of overcomplicate but like you were saying you know it's not just that the world is conspiring against their relationship i literally their their two best friends are pushing them like oh finally like when were you going to do this like there's everything should be happening and it's just I think it's a lot of these Jewish stereotypes of just like overthinking of, you know, talking a lot. I mean, Billy Crystal is a character who we should definitely point out. And we've covered him in in previous episodes on the podcast. And I've always kind of said he in some ways epitomizes coded Jewishness in a character because (laughs) especially of his era, no matter what movie he shows up in, there's like even when he's playing an explicitly Christian character, which I think actually happened in one of the movies we covered with him, like Uh he just brings this Jewishness. And I think a lot of that is his, you know, very like you said, his stubbornness, his, you know, 
uh, neuroses. And also, I just think a lot of his very kind of quick talking, you know, filling up space with excuses. Like what one scene that comes to mind when I'm talking about is, you know, like we said, he kind of establishes this rule of, you know, you can't be friends with someone if you're attracted to them because, you know, you're always like the guy is always thinking about having sex with a woman. Mm -hmm. And then in a kind of later scene when they're on a plane, they have this conversation where she says, like, what if they're in a relationship? I forget how it comes up. He kind of responds. Would you like to have dinner? Just friends. I thought you didn't believe men and women could be friends. When did I say that? On the ride to New York. No, 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 no. I never said that. Yes, that's right. They can't be friends. Unless both of them are involved with other people, then they can. This is an amendment to the early rule. If the two people are in relationships, the pressure of possible involvement is lifted. That doesn't work either because what happens then is the person you're involved with can't understand why you need to be friends with the person you're just friends with. And it just feels very like backpedaling, just like putting words, like he's not thinking, he's just speaking, he's, you know, manifesting whatever hesitation he has sure. in engaging in this relationship. You know, it's not as kind of tightly grounded his principles as, you know, the first scenes might have led you to believe. Right. Yeah. On one hand, it's like de pure deflection, like pure anxious right. deflection at all times. And on the other hand, it's like almost Tom Mudic, like... He mm -hmm. has like 50 like comments with like footnotes and rules. And it's so, I mean, God, as like a profoundly neurotic, anxious Eastern European Jew, I'm like, I get you. Like you both have no idea what you're talking about. And you are so overly confident that every aspect of what you're saying is 100%. Exactly. It just needs to make sense for, to him in order for him to be able to like walk through life in, in a way that is that kind of grounds him like he has his rules to rely on and and people need to you know relationships that he's in they need to kind of like follow his rules and sally's got her own thing going she has her own rules of the road how she lives life and it's really i almost think even until the end they agree to disagree and they like hate what you know i hate when you do this i hate that you do this i hate that but all that being said i guess we'll just like agree to disagree and we'll end up together kind of thing. It They never, nobody really like settles, you know, they, uh, the, nobody concedes on their, their sort of rules. It's, it, they're so like, they're so different. They're so like, they're like oil and vinegar. They, they never quite mix. They like coexist. Whereas like with the other couple with Jess and Marie, I feel like, you know, especially it's like um, at that, that dinner scene, you know, at the Luxembourg cafe. I think restaurants have become too important. Oh, I agree. Restaurants are to people in the 80s with theater was to people in the 60s. I read that in a magazine. I wrote that. Get out of here. <laughs> no, I did. I wrote that. I've never quoted anything from a magazine in my life. That's amazing. Don't you think that's amazing? And you wrote it? I also wrote Pastor's Quiche in the 80s. Get over yourself. I did. Where did I read that? New York Magazine. The way that they are like two pieces of a puzzle like if if it's they fit super well and it, it, it's a, it provides a very nice contrast to how Harry and Sally interact with each other and and their relationship grows it, it's funny with their relationship because I'm thinking now of some of the scenes in the middle which might be just the most delightful part of the movie which is when their friendship is really blossoming and you mm -hmm. get some of the most iconic set pieces and sequences when they're walking oh. through the forest and they're walking in the museum and we get that great you know the pecan pie paprika scene which if you know what I'm talking about and the, in those scenes, like, I think they do feel like they're completely in sync, that they have the same sensibility and the same sense of humor. And it's only when they're confronted with the prospect of an actual relationship 
So you kind of see like that, that oil and vinegar relationship you were talking about. It's Mm -hmm. really not true for most of the movie. It's true in like, you know, probably the most defined moment, which is right after they sleep with each other and you see kind of her face and she's like in love and she's lying (laughs) down on him. And then the camera kind of pans over to his face and you see he's just like stuck. And they've been, you know, foreshadowing that a while because they're talking about, you know, what happens the next day. But it's interesting how their relationship without the pretense of, you know, love and marriage and without kind of the weight of, making a decision on a relationship. The relationship is as close as any we've seen in this movie and any movie, honestly. They're incredible together, but it's only when the rules, quote unquote, come in and the and the future and the prospects and the expectations, that's the only time where I think they really start to, you know, just misalign with each other. I think even when they're arguing, sparring, or even like like really fighting or disagreeing, I find that there's like a warmth to... Um, to it and and this too feels very jewish to me is that you know you know stereotypically and irl jews will complain a lot complaining is functional but it is also recreational Mm -hmm. and you know and i think sometimes those complaints do lead to like sparring and arguments and opinions but i think there's just like a kind of warmth and directness to it and particularly to Harry's kind of like, he's insufferable, but he's like, he has a heart, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a heart to it all. And I think too with Sally, like th- like you're talking about Harry, they have this like beautiful friendship throughout most yeah. of the movie. And it's like, it has a lot of heart even when they are oiling and vinegaring with each other. So right. I, I love that about the movie too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The uh, Even right at the beginning, like, you know, when they're riding from University of Chicago to New York, like that whole scene with the, uh, you know, he's chewing grapes, and he's spitting seeds out the window. And- Why don't you tell me the story of your life? The story of my life? We've got 18 hours to kill before we hit New York. The story of my life isn't even going to get us out of Chicago. I mean, nothing's happened to me yet. That's why I'm going to New York. So something happened to you? Yes. Like what? Like I'm going to journalism school to become a reporter. So you can write about things that happen to other people. That's one way to look at it. He's like getting talkless, you know, like right to the point. Like, what do you want to do with your life? And she's, you know, I want to be a writer. And and, and it like, I think that that introduction is such a beautiful way to kind of get to know them. Like her direct, his directness versus like her sort of more uh, polite, you know, non-confrontational. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. And I mean, I guess we could kind of like... There's this, yeah, it's a bit reductive, but you know, like the Jewish sensibilities versus like a waspy kind of more reserved, polite, uh, you know, attitude towards interacting with people. And I feel like, you know, as the film progresses, I feel like there's a bit of a uh, a feelings reversal, whereas like Sally becomes much more expressive and ha- Harry becomes, he like, he tones it down just a little bit so that he can kind of meet her where she's at and she can kind of meet him where he's at. And so... They can the oil and vinegar can blend and make a nice salad dressing towards the end. But at the end, I feel like, you know, what I was saying is that like they they still do separate in terms of like they each have their space in terms of they keep their unique personalities. Nobody really compromises too much. They just learn to live with each other in in a way that is very beautiful and tasty. So to stretch that little salad dressing metaphor even further. But yeah, perfect. But keep the salad dressing on the side. Oh, of course. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. 
Uh, you, I wanted to say, uh, you know, we could talk about it towards the uh, the food part, but that that salad, Sally's like unique way of ordering food is sort of based on Nora Ephron's uh, ordering style. And, you know, uh, I think Rob Reiner was saying in this conversation that like in a conversation I watched on YouTube that like, you know, she's a food writer and we covered it in Heartburn when we talked about her, you know, um, her relationship to food and things like that, that oftentimes the 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 way that she would order food would sometimes inspire the chefs and and make the food taste even better than what how it was served uh, in the restaurant, which is kind of cool. Uh, and I think uh, a stewardess once noticed that Nora Ephron was ordering it in a very particular way, like ordering food in a particular way. And the stewardess asked her if she had ever seen this movie called When Harry Met Sally. So <laughs> I, thought <that> was, <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Kind of awesome. Yeah. While we're on the topic of coded Jewish representation, I, I wanted to bring one thing up that I actually didn't think we were going to discuss. But, you know, you mentioned earlier to me when you were talking about kind of Jewish sensibility and just thoughts about death. And it was just an aside, and I'm not sure how much we can relate this to the to this movie. But I think we noted in our notes, uh, Daniel and I, that there were a couple lines, you know, where they talk about thinking about death and, you know, he worries about his tumor. And there's like an almost existential worry to this that that even manifests in that final line you you know you uh you quoted earlier Daniel when you were saying you know when you want the rest of your life to start when you know who you want to spend the rest of your life with you know whatever you want the rest of your life to start like right away. yeah it's almost kind of goes to what we were saying earlier about like when there's no pressure they had this relationship and kind of the the future only became scary when it when it became about the future and almost more existential so am i correct in reading you know what you were talking about that kind of threat of death or that consciousness of you know death into some of the stakes of their relationship is, is that in this movie is this a little bit of a stretch what, what do you think about that i 100 percent think it is i mean in the first scene in that scene um daniel that you were referring to earlier mm -hmm. in the car they're talking about amanda mentioned you had a dark side that's what drew to me your dark side sure why don't you have a dark side no you're probably one of those cheerful people who dots their eyes with little hearts I have just as much of a dark side as the next person. Oh, really? When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. That, my friend, is a dark side. I feel like there's there's some intention to having that be one of the first lines in the movie. He's obsessed with death. Mm -hmm. And it just I don't know. It makes him, to me, relatable. I do think that, you know, rom-coms, I love rom-coms mostly unconditionally honestly but like they have a bad rap and some of them are awful and i i like some of those too but like mm -hmm. they're not always consciously existential uh you know maybe they're unconsciously existential but i do think like a movie like this is is putting some existential angst at its heart and that gives it to some real depth and to like sally's relentless optimism um it does, they do kind of end up in a place where, you know, he, like you said, he's not any less anxious about death, mm -hmm. but, but there's something about the two of them together that, you know, maybe we're not going to talk about death like all day, maybe just like in the afternoon. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, totally. you know, I mean, we love just like, I love talking about death. It's, I feel like, you know, I don't know what you all think, but I feel like it's a very Jewish activity yeah. to work me. To worry about and talk about mortality in both humorous and direly terrified ways. Yeah. I mean, I don't 
love talking about death. I don't dislike it. My my wife is a, a home care and hospice nurse, and so like mortality and life of end of life, and you know we have she has a hundred and three year old granny right now until 120, you know, um, but you know, like these conversations come up and I think, you know, as we get older, you know, people's parents, people's grandparents, loved ones pass away. And, and I think it's, it's part of growing up. And I, for me, I kind of like try, try to have a healthy attitude towards discussing it and just realizing, you know, when people go through illnesses and things like that, it just, it, it happens. And I think exploring your own feelings and being able to comfortably talk about it with other people is uh it's a hard thing to do but i think you know trying to to prepare yourself for these kind of moments i think is important to do i'm i'm i wouldn't say i'm like firmly in like harry burns camp where i'm like talking about i'm not flipping to pages quite yet but uh i want to you know maintain a healthy attitude towards it if possible you know and, com and being comfortable with it sorry go ahead harry no, I just almost to tie it back into kind of the movie and how it defines his character. I, I sure. think you can make the connection, especially the Jewish connection, you know, between the neuroses and the things that and the overthinking and the delayed decision making, because when you're you know facing the threat of mortality and you're thinking about the lasting impact of your choices, like obviously there's going to be some some more hesitation. And it again, this might be veering into the stretch ter territory, but when you're talking about kind of the read you were talking about, Daniel, which I've seen a lot of other places, you know, kind of that, you know, more waspy demeanor versus a more, you know, neurotic Jewish demeanor and how those kind of, you know, pair together. Mm -hmm. I think that's fitting that it's like the one who kind of is much more serious and much and puts a lot more pressure on himself. And even we see in scenes later with Harry where he encounters his ex-wife and he clearly is like very you know hung up and feels kind of the gravity and the weight of that i think that comes with this sense of mortality i think there's a lot of jewish connections you can make there you know the, the famously Jew, like there's no concept of the afterlife in the torah obviously that's been established in other places but like you know that kind of weight and maybe these aren't things that you know nor efron was conscious of when writing this into the character of harry but i think that there is an inherent existentialism tied to the neuroses and tied to kind of the the hesitation of Jewish people and, you know, of kind of Harry Burns in this movie. I, I really see that connection. And the other thing about the existentialism is like beyond the sort of actual content of it, like I think that a lot of Jewish people I know use it as a way to connect. Like it's like it's it's honest. It's like for sure we're like being a human is baffling. Like let's talk about it ad nauseum. Like that to me feels like a very Jewish way of connecting. And I think in some ways it's Harry's way of connecting. You know, this film, I almost feel like it's like a walking therapy session. Like the whole movie, I was talking to Harry, my co-host, not Harry Burns, about, <laughs> about the thing. Yeah, no problem. Uh, about the way that this film is like just scenes, you know, just chatting, a lot of chatting you know, going to the baseball or going to the football game, right? That's that's the one with the yeah football game. And, you know, they're talking and then as like the punchline, everyone's doing the wave. And and I just loved everything about these these conversations. They're really talking it out and thinking it through. And it, it really feels like just friends discussing things. There's not a lot that happens in the movie. There are like funny scenes and things like that. But we really get into the heads of these people. And we understand what's going on. We talk through their hangups, their reservations, their feelings about things. And it just, it feels so natural. It feels great. And yeah, it, it, 
it feels very Jewish, right? Like, well, I don't know. I mean, this and her and this and that. And they managed to this to squeeze in like loads of jokes and but it all feels very natural. And I don't know uh, to get your thoughts on that. But yeah, I just loved it. And it, it seems so unique in a lot of rom-coms. I, I saw one recently that just was like very heavy on plot and a lot of like misunderstandings and miscommunications. And like, this is, there's not a lot of that here. This is a very direct film. Both characters are very sure of themselves and you know, there's no, yeah, nobody gets mixed up. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about that actually. And specifically just some of the interesting structural choices. And this is something I was hoping to develop for the stretch, but I can honestly talk about it here. And th this is what I was mentioning earlier about this movie being, you know, principled and I guess the word I was looking for, I, I found was kind of like axiomatic in a certain way where it's like, and, and I think you even mentioned to me earlier that it's Talmudic. And I really think it is in the way that it kind of outlines, you know, what are going to be like the rules of a relationship in a way that like the, the Mishnah almost does, you know, and it says here are kind of the rules, the principles. And then it develops those through a, a number of different ways. It's through conversations with characters, you know, anecdotal. It's through stories. You could refer to that as like an, a mushal, right? A parable that would appear in the Gemara that kind of represents it. And that's kind of our main story. But then the third part of it, which I also really wanted to hear to get everyone's thoughts on, are, on, are the way that there are these interspersed direct to camera conversations mm. between elder couples that have nothing to do with the rest of the they, they kind of tie in at the very end when we see Harry and Sally, you know, giving their own testimonial. But again, it felt very direct and Talmudic, like, you know, here, let's bring in another source where someone can tell you a story to kind of supplement it. And it, I, I think we all felt that that was Jewish. Certainly some of the couples were. And just to give some background on that sequence, apparently, the, all those stories had come from real people that were in, you know, Rob Reiner's life. I think he had, I think he was even inspired to do it by his friend's parents who he heard tell the story of their love. The actual scenes in the movie, although they seem like they're real people, are actors recreating the conversations that right. were captured on film, just kind of, mm -hmm. you know, as dialogue. But even so, it was like nothing I've ever seen in another rom-com and nothing I've really seen since. And uh, I don't know, I, I think... Uh, my read on it is it felt very Jewish in this very axiomatic way of the rest of the structure, but what else about it, you know, and, and the rest of the structure at large kind of contributed to this Jewish read or even just the success of the movie, you know, in general. Yeah, I think that one of my favorite part, I, I, I'm probably going to misquote it, but the part where one of them is like, I knew like, you know, a good melon. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of food, but I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I love, as I said before, I love those parts so much. I think, first of all, it's just more conversation. It's more talking, more mm -hmm. work. Like the evidence is just words on top of words on top of words. It's very, very Jewish in that way and very, yeah, very unique. It's not, there aren't scenes that advance the plot. They're just sort of like little yeah. anecdotes that contribute to the atmosphere. Um, at, you know, interrupting kind of over familiarity in this beautiful way. Mm -hmm. um, storytelling. I mean, storytelling is just so Jewish. I mean, it's, storytelling is many things to many people, but Jewish storytelling is so deeply important. And just like, you know, how many of us have sat around, you know, listening to grandparents or elders or older Jewish people just tell you know, very protracted stories about one <laughs> or another, including like how they met. Right. I remember my great grandmother, my great grandmother, my great aunt used to tell the story of like 
the the creation of the bagel and we have her we have her on video it's so beautiful because it's so long i don't even really remember what it's about but it was so sweet to hear her like tell the story about how the bagel was invented amazing yeah i I, I feel like to carry your your talmudic thread here and pull at it a little bit i feel like the the machloket or the discussion the arguments between the couples telling the stories where these like seemingly innocuous details were like, so it was a Tuesday. No, no, it was a Thursday. Oh, no, it wasn't. Just the sort of like you were talking to me, like these back and forth, they don't really have any bearing on the ultimate like message of the story. But the way that there's like these discussions about little things and the way that they're interrupting each other, it's really nice and seems like, again, very natural. Um, You know, and then going back to these, you know, conversations, I feel like, you know, the the friends have these conversations, but then ultimately, like you said, Harry, like some of these sort of building block scenes at the beginning of Harry and Sally sort of pre, you know, sex moments, all those when we're sort of establishing their characters, they just feel so good. Um, and yeah, I love it. I don't know. I, I want to be able to have conversations like that. But unfortunately, I don't have the, the Efron gift of, of, of words like that. But uh, having your words written out for you. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I love I love the, the elderly couples telling the story. And I love that it's in the, the mouths of these elderly couples, because I think you, you're so right, both of you, but especially what you were saying to me about it, evoking just like sitting around your grandparents and hearing that story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Jewish in the sense that it also puts our main story and really the story of love and relationships in this sort of tradition. Like this is something passed down from grandparents, from generations. And this is like what they're gonna continue towards. Like it, it, you know, evokes this kind of Jewish oral tradition. And obviously there are many traditions that have, you know, love that kind of pervades through time, but it, it's just amazing to kind of feel that, you know, carried down and another, you know, piece of fun, you know, fun fact trivia that, that you know, I'm sure the two of you know, but that I'll share with our audience is that apparently this movie originally ended without the couple ending up together. Ooh, okay. And I think you mentioned earlier, Daniel, like Rob Reiner was like directing this after coming out of his divorce. Right. And then I think on set, he met someone who would mm-hmm. end up becoming his wife for the next, you know, right. I mean, still to today, I think. And I think that kind of meeting her and falling in love again while making this movie completely changed the ending. And it's just, I don't know when the decision to add in like, you know, all these couples and just make this movie. I mean, I, I said this earlier, but like just this like axiom of just like what love can look like and what it can be and like use all this evidence of like, here are different versions of love. I don't know if that came before or after he kind of had this literal change of heart, but it's just it's so it works it all works together and like you said daniel it just all feels good together like this movie is so so joyous i mean it goes back to our first conversation there there's no real threats to their relationship there's no like dramatic conflict in a way that makes you like this isn't like one of those typical rom-coms where someone does something that makes you hate them and then they have to like apologize and forgive like there are you know bits of that on a smaller scale but at the end of the day this really is kind of a feel-good you know romantic comedy i loved it yeah. I'm so glad he fell in love both for him, but also for the movie, because can you imagine if Terrible. they had walked away from each other at the end? No, oh, that would have been crushed. Have yeah. I mean, Harry does do some things that are like a little like he he's sure of himself, but they're kind of like lousy in a, in a just being right. like a decent dude. Uh, but I think that like cements his sort of strong character choices and his I don't know. He just, yeah, very strong guy. You Harry, can I make a clumsy segue for a second? Cuz you were talking you were talking before about Rob Reiner meeting his his wife and it and sure. you know getting divorced from Penny Marshall. I almost feel like 
it was meant to be like that was his Basharat. And I wanted to sort of bring up this this concept of Basharat and like this, uh, you know, this sort of destined person or this, um, how would we describe it? Your your soulmate, maybe? Yeah. Your, yeah. Soulmate adjacent. Soulmate adjacent, yeah. Or like your other half, you know. Um, and I, you know, I, yeah. I wanted to kind of introduce this concept. We'll see if it, you know, if it takes. But just the fact that Harry and Sally are like meant to be with each other and they're destined to be with each other, um, you know, throughout the years they run into each other several times. Um, there are other people in between, um, but just generally want to open up the the discussion to like very light topics like fate and free will, <laughs> things like that, and see if we can if we can kind of mine that uh, and map it onto to the film. Any thoughts there? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is actually something I, I played with a lot in writing my book is like leaning into coincidence mm -hmm. um, in a way where it's not necessarily fully coincidence, where it's like these synchronicities that happen so often in love stories and in, you know, in folklore and all kinds of storytelling, um, you know, I think oftentimes in conversations about film or fiction, it's like, oh, that's unrealistic and mm -hmm. that's okay because we're suspending disbelief for the movie but but i do think there's something lovely about um you know i don't think you have to be remotely sort of a religious person or believe in capital f fate to feel like oh yeah the fact that they keep running into each other there's something there there's something like there's something that maybe they should be listening to it doesn't mean they're necessarily the only person for each other but i like the idea that you know we're all culturally i think there's such a skepticism about like coincidence and it's just total chance and maybe it is and maybe it isn't but i think there's something nice about leaning into it and being like hey this is like the fourth time we've run into each other maybe we should like do <laughs> something about it right you know with all this stuff you know right time right place is a big thing and what's interesting about this movie is that there's a lot of you know right place i guess wrong yeah. time like this movie really does flirt with like these kind of false starts and every step of the way and, and like it's interesting how not only is i think this this like notion of coincidence and things kind of being together work out for them but you know it bleeds out for them like their friends you know who showed up on their kind of double dates together and it just happened to be that they were together like you know, you put together this entire, you know, unit of like relationships that kind of all came together because, and I guess that that fits in with the, um, with like the interspersed stories, because I think mm -hmm. the prompt question for those, if I'm remembering correctly, are like, how did you meet, right? Tell right. us the story of, yeah. uh, and even the, the name of the movie, when Harry met Sal, like this is about that kind of first chance encounter. And like one of the stories, someone says like, for six years, she worked on the 15th floor. I worked for floor a very prominent as a neurologist. Nurse, where I Dr. had a practice on the 14th floor, the very same we building. never met. Never met. Can you imagine that? You know where we met? In an elevator. I was visiting family. In the Ambassador Hotel in Chicago, He was Illinois. on the third floor. I was on the 12th. I rode up nine extra floors just to keep talking to her. Nine extra floors. I think this movie... I, I mean, like, as, as someone, I think I agree with you, Tamim, that I believe in, I'm somewhere in between this kind of, you know, fate exists, but there's also just like coincidences and, and really acting on them and making something out of them and being, you know, with the right person and kind of building that together. And I think this movie is attributing both their relationship, Harry and Sally, if I could propose to them meeting in the right place but also to the way it developed. Like they could not have been a couple at any earlier point in history right. because of where they were in their own lives, where they mm -hmm. were together. And like, they really only get there 
through their friendship. Like as as much as this movie and like, you know, uh, Harry's axioms, which, you know, ultimately might not even be proven true because he kind of even doubts himself and, you know, evolves them, you know, where he yeah. says you can either be like this binary, you know, friends, or you can't even do that or a relationship and kind of nothing. It's interesting that this movie is really about a friendship that evolves into a relationship. Like it's almost about the necessity for kind of that in between. And I even wondered the first time I was watching it, I'm like, because they end up together, does this movie ultimately prove his original point that you can't be friends with someone <laughs> unless like you end up, because like they, he, he wasn't wrong. Like they ultimately do. Right. But they also were friends before then. So I think this movie kind of has its cake and eats it too, in a way that it, you know, allows them to kind of, it, it, pushes for this friendship developing into a relationship. It kind of gives them a little bit of both. I wanted to weigh in on the the debate about like, uh, you know, they may have been fated to to be with each other, but there there were several stops along the way where like, you know, that first scene at the airport where Harry could have like clocked that he saw Sally and just gotten on the plane and not sure. taken that next step where he was like chatting up. I mean, the fact that he also knew her boyfriend, it's a little, you know, okay. Well, like, but whatever, like you said to me, I'm going to suspend my disbelief there. But like he could have gone on and not even worried about it. And then that would have been the end of it. Or maybe they would have run into each other again. But like, yeah, there's there's several paths that we could have um, that he could have pursued, you know, throughout the film. And having to choose this one or that one, I think, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been as exciting as a movie of, of a movie had he not, you know, not pursued Sally in that way. But I think. You know, seeing also over the years, the evolution of, you know, the hairstyles, the attitudes towards life, their careers and things like that. Uh, it, it's it's really nice because it does give it that sort of, you know, you get a sense of their evolution of as people, as characters and things like that. Um, and one thing just to call out, like, I think Rob Reiner and, and Nora Ephron had mentioned that they didn't want to like saddle too much of the movie down with this like whole career subplot. So they kind of mention in passing, oh, you know, he's a writer, he's a political consultant, but they don't put too much weight on that. They kind of really focus most on, mostly on the relationships, which I felt was like a nice touch. You sort of have an idea of like what they do, but we're mostly focused on this relationship and we're kind of all in making sure that we see how they grow. So. So that was a discussion of a few themes from When Harry Met Sally. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back and we'll discuss in our second segment a few fun questions that Harry will introduce for us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Tamim Fruchter to discuss When Harry Met Sally. I'm going to toss it to my Harry to discuss some categories for us. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, so just to start us off, I wanted to ask everyone, what did you find was the most Jewish scene in the movie? I have to say, we've already discussed this scene some, but I really, I have to go with the first scene. Um, the first scene, as in the beginning of the road trip, the beginning of their 18 hour road trip within seconds, Billy Crystal is one eating Rude. <laughs> That's good. Like, emphatically eating. Okay. Um, Love it. You know, it's like you immediately like he like leans over the back seat and it's like his butt is up against the windshield. So it's like I don't know. I think a lot of Jewish humor does also center the body. There's physical comedy. Um, Love it. And then he immediately is you know grilling Sally. So he shows himself to be kind of a kind of a you know. A questioner and then immediately is like well what you know what if you die 
What if you die one of those New York deaths where your body just starts to stink after two weeks? And, you know, then he talks about having a dark side and flipping to the end of the book. So I just think it's an establishing scene that like really, really centers Harry's sort of neurotic Jewishness. I mean, also parenthetically, like some sexist behaviors that we hope he grows out of by the end of the film. But like, you know, his his, his deep Jewishness and sort of Sally's um, foil, Sa- Sally's like contrasting more sort of waspy reactions and behaviors. Sure. Harry, how about you? I, I really like that one. And I'm going to have to stick with, I mean, all the above, but I'll stick with the food part in particular. And mm-hmm. mostly as an excuse to shout out what is probably the most iconic scene in the movie, which is the Cat's Deli one, where uh, where Sally kind of fakes an orgasm to prove to Harry that, you know, it can be done. And I don't know, We someone else can have the conversation about how Jewish that aspect of the scene is. But okay. just to shout out, just to shout out the Cat's Deli of it all, you know, as a location, it's become iconic, you know, from before, but obviously through this movie they they regularly they have like pictures of harry and sally in there and that's kind of become it but putting it at a deli you could argue this is a very new york location you know if we're going to center any food in the movie and there are some other mentions to it but just having them at a deli with the pastrami sandwich i mentioned before we discussed this movie that you know there's nothing really you could point to to even say jewishness that actually is the one thing you could point to. So if you're watching this and this kind of central conversation, iconic theme happens, you know, at not just a, a deli, but one of the most iconic Jewish delis in New York City, I think that's uh, that's pretty Jewish in a different way than I think the way you described that first scene, which is also very, very Jewish. Uh, Daniel, where, where do you think? What's the most Jewish scene of the movie to you? This is a tough one. I feel like I, I need a second <laughs> to think about it. There's a lot. I mean, there's... There's like a literal Jewish scene in terms of like on Harry's desk at his political consultant job, he has one of these like birds that drips down and like gathers water. And I don't know if you noticed, but the bird has a black hat on and payas. I didn't. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I think I took a picture, which I can share in just a moment, but I feel like that is a literal Jewish mention. Um, And... I feel like, you know, Billy Crystal's humor is something that I really enjoyed in the film. So I might just go with like the scene at the Met where he's like improvising. Waiter, there is too much pepper on my paprikash. <laughs> Waiter, there, there is, is too, too much, much pepper, pepper on my paprikash. On my paprikash. But I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. <laughs> oh, no. But I would but, be proud. But I would be proud. To partake. To partake. Of your pecan pie. Pie. Of your pecan pie. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. Just that sort of silliness, I feel like, is very Jewish. Uh, so, yeah, maybe that's like a ha- two half scenes, if that works. Um, and that was like, it was an improvised line. Uh, I think Meg Ryan looked off to director Rob Reiner and he said, continue and go for it and just go with it. And then she looks back at him. And so they continue the scene. But th- that's going to be my take for now. Yeah. I like it. So we've been talking about the Jewish sensibility of this movie. There's so much kind of Jewishness in here. And honestly, we've stepped on the stretch a lot. But I guess if anyone has any more, I wanted to ask the second, you know, introduce the second category, which is what were what were some of the Jewish stretches of the pod, as we like to call them, which are, you know, stretches that you can read into the movie, maybe not intended by the writer director as being Jewish scene, but, you know, using our Jewish framework and sensibility, we can kind of read some Jewishness into them. Are there any scenes that come to mind for anyone? Well, I mean, I feel like I want to give Sally some airtime because, sure, you know, even though she's not the Jewish coded character, I 
love her. I love Meg Ryan, that character. And, you know, we've been talking about food and I kind of feel like you could make an argument that Sally's way, like extremely exacting, particular, insistent way on ordering food, you know, perhaps comes from a kosher upbringing. Because I will say, I like that a lot. I will say that as someone who was raised modern Orthodox and kept kosher, you know, until my early 20s, I I am extremely picky. Friends of mine have like a, a taxonomy of like my weird opinions about different cheeses. They're inconsistent. They make no sense. I am often known to like order things on the side. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, people who have were raised with like dietary laws like probably are very particular about how they eat and what they learn to like i mean i feel cursed because i don't like baked goods that have butter because we couldn't have butter after having oh, meat so sure margarine and you know margarine, it's a, yeah it's a real shonda but um so that's my that would be my stretch i think that's that's really really good like i, I think that really comes from a place of you know, that that we could kind of attribute to, I don't Nora Ephron, I know we, we said is Jewish but or was Jewish, but, and I don't know where that's coming from, but being particular and especially that kind of ordering, you know, that's by necessity. And I'm going to, I had some other stretches I wanted to talk about, you know, I've honestly gotten most of them off, a lot of the structure, a lot of the, the principal stuff, but I kind of just want to piggyback on yours because I like it so much. And in particular, focus on, you know, the salad, right? Because the iconic thing is the salad with the dressing on the side. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side and I like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream. But only if it's real, if it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh-huh. Which is very, very real, you know, speaking from the perspective of, you know, knowing, you know, kind of people who kept kosher observant people who kind of you, you always have to go on that work dinner and or that work lunch and you have to order something. And one of the safest bets is always salad because salad is generally not cooked and it's, you know, ingredients that you can point to that, you know, are kosher. But salad dressings often have vinegar, which is one of the most you know, susceptible to not being kosher ingredients that are out there. So an order of salad with dressing on the side feels to me like, you know, epitomizes the kind of trying to fit in, eat at the kosher, eat at the non-kosher restaurant, kosher keeping, you know, juice. So I'm really, I'm giving you the credit for this. I'm just piggybacking on your stretch, but just pointing to the salad as, you know, one finer lane, finer line, you know, whatever of, of granularity to say, you know, that's like a really, really Jewish scene is just the specific order of the salad. Uh, Dana, do you have any other stretches for us? So it's, I'm going to actually do what's called, do, I feel like we used to call this segment stretch of the pod slash biblical illusions. And I was like cooking up a biblical illusion here. So uh, let's, let's, you know, <laughs> strap in. It might be a little bit bumpy, but I feel like, so Jacob, right? Yaakov married Rachel and Leah, correct? Just want to make sure I got my facts right. Yes, but before, I, I think he wanted to marry Rachel, but first, we had to work for Lavan for seven years. And so my stretch is that, that Harry is, is Jacob and, and Sally is, is uh, Rachel in, in that, and I'm sure this is exactly what Nora Ephron had in mind when she was making the film. We all know that, it's well established. But, uh, you know, I think just this idea that you kind of have to work really hard to get, you know, uh, to get to your goals, right? And you may not know at the time, so maybe the analogy sort of falls apart, but 
you know, maybe Helen was Leia in that, you know, this was his first wife. And then ultimately he had to, it's, it's a loose, it's a little stretchy. It doesn't quite hold up, but I just thought this idea of like working over time for someone you love, I feel like it's right there on the, on the page. So that's sort of my biblical illusion there. It's so funny because, well, you know, you mentioned that like it's the it's the blessing and curse of this podcast that it's kind of changed the way I watch movies and especially mm-hmm. in preparation for the podcast. Yeah. But like I literally had all those same thoughts as oh, I was really? counting the years and thinking of a stretch. And it's I agree. It is so ungrounded that it's ridiculous that it even crossed my mind right. and dismissed it because I didn't think there was enough there. But I love that you kind of brought light to it. It's, it's a perfect it. stretch. Definitely intended by the filmmakers. I think that uh, that really works. I saw that on Wikipedia somewhere that both Rob <laughs> Reiner and Nora Ephron had that in mind. So, oh yeah, confirmed. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll post the link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, way down there somewhere. Now, I I want to talk. You know, just can I ask a bonus round question? Sure. What's everyone's? We were talking before about picky eating. Uh, you know, in special order and stuff like that. What is your? What's everyone's style of of ordering? Are we more of the Harry camp, more the Sally camp? How do we order food, generally speaking? I eat like I said. I think I'm. I think I'm more Sally camp. Like I am a little bit of a weird orderer. Like I try to not be super high maintenance and you mm-hmm. know not make wait staff miserable, but. Sometimes a thing has to be on the side and sometimes there are substitutions. And so, you know, I don't know if I'm quite a Sally, but I think, you know, if I had to, if I had to choose, I think I'm a bit more of a picky orderer. Okay. Harry? I, I think I have to be a Harry. I also think I, I am one, you know, not just because we share a name, but I also think that is how I order. Um, I also want to take this moment to give a little bit of a shout out to my younger brother, Leo, who's been asking for a shout out on the podcast and be careful what you wish for, because I might make you look not as good as, as maybe you were hoping, but he's definitely the Sally in our relationship. Okay. I love ordering with him, but he is one of those like, don't even put it on the sandwich and scoop it off, like separate on the sides, kind of same thing at all the restaurants, kind of love you, Leo. He's honestly gotten much better at ordering and is, you know, hopefully like Harry and Sally, our relationship, we're kind of bleeding onto each other and taking the best of both. But just wanted to give Leo a quick shout out for that one. But Daniel, you can also answer now. What what was your, what is your kind of style of, of eating, ordering, et cetera? I mean, I feel like we could have a whole nother discussion about like what your bagel order is. Maybe I should have been a, a bit more specific, but like for me, like in general, I feel like my order is pretty good. Like I can kind of look at the menu, figure out, you know, oh, what's this? Is this like a meat thing? Is this a cheese thing? Like sometimes if it's a bit, you know, exotic, I don't quite know if we're talking about like a dried meat thing or if it's an exotic cheese. You know, I often get confused between the two. Um, but my bagel order, I would say, is just like if I'm ordering in New York, they tend to over cream cheese things. So I kind of go light cream cheese on it. Um, that's the only time where I feel like I have to be very deliberate because otherwise I'll just end up with like a mound of cream cheese on my non-scooped bagel. Um, I don't scoop. but uh, Big you know, controversy. On the yeah. internet this week? It's, I don't it's, know. Yeah. yeah. As as of the recording, this happened last week and it was uh, some guy from California was ordering a bagel scooped in, in New York and was like kicked out of the, the bagel shop. So like, we don't we do, don't that, do that. Get out. Yeah. I mean, I don't and, know about you, but among my friends, a blueberry bagel is also heresy. Ooh. Heresy. So, fighting words, but I'm just putting it out there. Hmm. I will say I am partial to the cinnamon raisin only yeah. because it's it's I've, I've you know my one of my mom's favorites apparently she ate it every day for breakfast when she was pregnant with me so maybe I kind of inherited that but I think that has the right salty sweet balance but mm-hmm. blueberry 
No, no offense to any of our listeners, but it sounds atrocious to me. I love a cinnamon raisin, but blueberry does feel a bridge too far. It's like kind of a weird muffin in a disguise. Can we talk about chocolate chip or is that like... Because like Einstein's here in Seattle has chocolate chip and a toasted I'm... chocolate chip with some cream cheese is like a sweet and savory mix. It's not for it's everyone. A muffin. It's, yeah. like a, it's like Chicago style pizza. I mean, you can edit that out if you know. No, right? I... I I appreciate that. While we're talking about New York, and first, let me just mention, you know, bagel, cream cheese, lox, lettuce, tomato, onion, and capers this is my kind of go-to order. Wow. But one thing that... <laughs> your eyes like rolled back in your head here. And you're like, oh. I've, I've memorized that. That is, yeah, that is my order. I would love one of those right now. But what we were talking about kind of out of state, you know, what the sure. guy once was reading was that like, I personally never get my bagel toasted. I want the fresh, fluffy bagel, you know, out of the oven. And I was reading online once that they said that not like having your bagel toasted is a New York privilege because you don't realize that everywhere else in the world to get a bagel to be like edible, you kind of need to toast it a little uh-huh. bit and access to delicious bagels that are kind of fresh and fluffy is like a real New York privilege thing. So yeah. I uh, I just, whatever, I feel very grateful for that. But I am, I definitely would never toast my bagel unless I needed to. But. I also never toast my bagel. And I will say mm. my final comment on this sub podcast about bagel order yeah. is that I think I could have my Eastern European Jew card revoked because I do not like cream cheese. Okay. Wow. Yep. You like a buttered <laughs> bagel? I like butter. Yeah. I can do vegan cream cheese, but you know, as I as I referenced my weird taxonomy of cheeses, I cannot sure. cannot do cream cheese. And it's it's a real I won't mm. say Shonda again, but it's you know <laughs> Great. Yeah, sure. I I am a uh, I'll take the cream cheese that Daniel is not getting on his bagel, kind of the extra that's scooped off. I just put that onto mine. I want oh. the overstuffed cream cheese spoon of cream cheese. Oh, yeah, that is. Uh, and I'm also I'm Gross. actually not such a cheese guy in general, but cream cheese. I don't know. Grew up on it. I just feel like it's like I'm a bearded fella, and so like when I eat the cream cheese, it just kind of decorates my face with cream cheese, and I'm just like I'm good. No thanks. I want to keep that to a minimum so I can enjoy my sandwich, but. Let's talk about the lasting legacy of this film besides like picky. I was going to say, that's okay. I could do this. I could do this all for another hour, but I yeah. think people would turn off the podcast. So yeah, let's get to the final question or tune in more. I don't know. You know, so what is the lasting legacy of this film in terms of uh, its depiction of Jewish people, Jewish culture? Is this film, as they say, good for the Jews or not? Who would like to weigh in first? I can weigh in. I think this film is very good for the Jews. I think it's, it's just, like I said before, it's such a warm film, but it's not warmth without sort of barbs and edges and anxieties and sort of existential honesty. Um, but I think the Jewish, the Jewish codedness, the Jewish sensibility in this in this movie is so delightful and at times incredibly annoying, at times like incredibly self-sabotaging but those things are human and ultimately um the movie is one about like connection even when that connection is through complaining um which let's be honest like sometimes that's a really beautiful way to connect so um you know and just all the sort of like fast dialogue the fast you know back and forth sparring the banter and um it's very Nora Ephron, but it's also very Jewish in a in a way that I adore. So I'm going to go with very good for the Jews. Uh, oh, a resounding very good. I like that. Harry, how about yourself? Yeah. 
I, I agree. It's very good for the Jews. Like this is an incredible rom-com that is recognized as a Jewish movie, you know, even though and we'll get into this when we talk about the rankings, it might not have so many explicit Jewish references. I mean, that sensibility comes clear. And I think it's all the best parts, including like you were saying, I didn't, I didn't even think I realized how existential and kind of aware of death some of these characters were in this movie was. But the way that that kind of plays in and motivates a lot of their relationship and the way that it kind of blossoms in this movie, I mean, it. There, there's something very Jewish and just, I think, very positive about it. And in terms of lasting legacy, I think what's really good about this movie is that kind of the the Jewish rom-com, you know, what that kind of looked like might have been Woody Allen for a long time. And it's kind of a good thing that this has dethroned it in some ways in, in you know, popular culture as like, you know, the Jewish rom-com you can point to. Like, in, you know, for reasons external to maybe the movies themselves, it's nice that people might rank, you know, When Harry Met Sally and think of that as the Jewish, you know, in, you know antecedent to a lot of rom-coms as opposed to, you know, an Annie Hall or something, you know, like I said, irrespective of the quality of the movies themselves. But, but all that aside, I, I do think that this is very Jewish movie, looks great, come off as really positive Jewish characters, good for the Jews for sure. Not to be a, a picky film viewer, but I feel like we could probably say that this is the Jewish uptown rom-com. And I feel like Crossing Delancey is like the downtown Jewish rom-com. Uh, like different sensibilities. Uh, you know, as a downtown person, I want to make sure that my perspective is represented, represent Lower East Side, Grand Street, all the way. Yeah. So in terms of the legacy, I feel like echoing a lot of what everyone has said already. It's a coded Jewish film. You know, Billy Crystal is famous for like, like you said, Harry, not really being explicitly Jewish. Besides, you know, for this uh, drinking bird on his desk, there's nothing explicitly Jewish. But I, I feel like the way that people are conversing openly about their thoughts, their feelings, about death. I mean, he's the only one in the film, but I think his sort of attitude and, and openness to discussing things with Bruno Kirby and with Meg Ryan and with Carrie Fisher to some extent, who is Jewish, who was Jewish, uh, you know, I feel like that pervades the entire film and Nora Ephron's writing and Rob Reiner's directing. The sensibility like pervades it all. And it's all, uh, you know, it's great. I love it. I would say I would echo everyone's sentiments and say, yeah, it's a, it's a terrific film for the Jews. So now that we've had all these like warm feelings towards the film, let's put them in numbers. We're going to go on a scale of one to five Jewish stars or stars of David um, based, you know, on the cast and crew, people behind and in front of the camera the content of the film, the themes of the film, uh, some of which we discussed today, but others that are out there. And uh, yeah, so we'll just kind of go around, not the quality of the film, but just is this film Jewish on a scale of one to five Jewish stars? I can uh, start us off with some numbers. I uh, A lot of Jew, Jews, you know, in front of and behind the camera that, you know, we've mentioned already, Rob Reiner, Nora Ephron, uh, you know, Billy Crystal, of course. And I know there's a number of others that were kind of involved I was reading about. So this really, this, but I think the testament to this movie's Jewishness is not just that it kind of existed beyond the camera, but I think all of those people really contributed that to the language of the movie. You know, Billy mm -hmm. Crystal probably most explicitly, but, you know, even Nora Ephron, I mean, we, we opened this episode with that quote of her, you know, talking about kind of what makes a Jewish rom-com in reference to, you know, this this specific movie. So if she was kind of thinking about that in writing this story and, and everything she talked about it being kind of insular inside your head, you know, and getting in your own way and mapping out in the movie, like I, I think that goes a really long way for the Jewishness of this. It's not the most explicitly Jewish content wise. I mean, I, I kind of have to ding it reluctantly for just, you know, not really telling an explicitly it's, it's very much an implicit Jewish story. It's just not an explicit one, but you do have a lot of characters. And I think a lot of the themes that we argued about the structure and kind of, you know, the tradition of love, I, I really think fits in. 
I think I'm going to go 375, 3.75 Very strong. out of five Jewish stars. Oh, interesting. I I was doing my best not to hit four, but I really oh, wanted okay. to because of everything else. But, but yeah, so then I feel pretty good about that. So 375, because I think to get in the fours, it would have to be, you know, I don't know, just a more Jewish story. I don't need to throw out a hypothetical right now. But um, but with everything else, like there is more Jewishness, even than I thought after watching it initially, just having these conversations with everyone. So 3.75. Uh, where does everyone else weigh in in terms of numbers? Yeah, uh, you know, maybe I'm going to be a little radical and give it a four. Um, okay. All right. I, I did think about it because I think, you know, it really like you don't have to know that it's a Jewish movie at all. Right. Like you could watch it and, you know, maybe have no idea or maybe have some idea, but not really see it as a Jewish coded movie. And it's a classic, you know, rom-com. It's, you know it's a new year's movie. It's a Christmas movie. It's a, it's like Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. But yeah, I just think maybe my personal relationship to it, um, particularly to the Billy Crystal character is so it's just, it just feels so Jewish to me. And there, there are just certain movies that speak to that sensibility that feel far more Jewish to me than like perhaps a movie that is you know, explicitly about, you know, the Jewish community in some way. Because of that and because of everything you said, Harry, the sort of Jewish creators who made it um, with that spirit in mind, I'm going to give it a four. Why do I always end up looking? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I love the movie. This is not a, uh, you know, an indictment of its quality, of its, you know, everything like that. But I just feel like there's so many more Jewish movies out there. This is a very enjoyable movie. I mean, to your point, Tamim, Everybody could watch this and enjoy it, and they don't have to have that sort of Jewish background, which says something about, like, if someone was to watch it and aside, yeah, I don't know, people wouldn't be like, this is definitely a Jewish movie. If someone, you know, I'm guessing, if someone was, like, not Jewish, you know, he's not explicitly Jewish. Aside from the bird, there's nothing Jewish in the movie. We keep talking about this bird. I don't know why. But, like, so I don't know. I mean, the the creatives involved with the film certainly give, give it something and the themes we discussed give it something. There's no content in it that's Jewish. You know, the wedding at the end is not a Jewish wedding. You know, they're eating shrimp with with the little sugar snap peas. It's not kosher. Right. I mean, there is the kashrut stretch that we talked about. So I don't know. I feel like, Harry, please don't hate me. I, f- I feel like I might go like two and a half or two and three quarters. I love the film. It's just not a very Jewish film to me. It's enjoyable, but you know. This is my role to me. I have to be the sort of Sally of the podcast. By I'm kind of, yeah. And we yeah. love Sally. You know? yeah. We do love I Sally. Do. For, love for I'm very picky, you know? Yeah. yeah. I like so. it. I, I like the balance. I like the balance to our upper scores. I think you're definitely right. This is a movie that if you're watching it from the content perspective, it'd be hard to say, like, is this really a Jewish movie? But right. it's just because that sensibility was like so sure. obvious and obvious to us for sure. You're right. Yeah. To every audience, I'm not sure, but a lot of the internet seemed to agree. But um, but but I do like that balance. I think that's a good place to uh to wrap up our three our three scores. Sure, Tamim Fruchter, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us on Jews on Film to discuss when Harry met Sally. I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about your book City of Laughter, which is out on January sixteenth. Yes, I would love to. Um, my book is a I I like to call it a speculative queer history of an Eastern European Jewish family. It follows four generations of women in this family and um, the sort of folkloric 
um, shape-shifting stranger who, with whom they have encounters over a hundred years. Um, it's very rooted in my own childhood and adult love of Jewish folklore. And it's very rooted in queerness. And like I mentioned before, it sort of leans into um, coincidence, synchronicity, something that sort of stubbornly follows a family from generation to generation until somebody finally perks up and listens. It follows this family from, you know, the, the D.C. metropolitan area to New York to Warsaw um, and back to New York again and zigzags through time and space and um, relationship to the real world slash the world just beyond our own. Sounds great. I encourage Thank everyone you. to check it out. You know, January 16th, wherever you get books. It sounds amazing. I really, yeah. uh, I'm excited yeah. to read it. It sounds awesome. And I cannot wait to review the adap the movie adaptation of it on this book. <laughs> have you thought Thank at you. all about, have you thought at all about who you would want to cast or what it would look like? Would that Catherine Hahn were Jewish? Like mm. that is my... She can certainly play a Jew. But... She can certainly play a yes, Jew. Yes, yes. I am certainly not opposed. So, I mean, she like... When I imagined the film adaptation of this, like she was the first person who I imagined. I just, awesome. uh, you know, beyond that, I, <laughs> beyond that, I don't know. Uh, I'll have yeah. to get back to you. But um, no, but it's, I, it's a great role for if you know Catherine. If you're listening, let's talk. It's it's a great start. We, we've spoken about kind of non-Jewish people playing Jewish characters, and in my opinion, as long as you don't put a prosthetic nose on her, I think it would work. <laughs> I think it would be great, but. Totally. Uh, if she's listening, you should totally do it. This this book sounds amazing. You know, you kind of talked uh, a little bit about your love of folklore, but I wonder, had you thought about approaching your sort of your life story in like a memoir version as opposed to kind of doing a more fantastical version? And what did sort of going one way versus the other like allow you to do as an author? I think I could never write a memoir because my memory is so bad. It's just truly very bad memory. But, I, you know, I've had conversations with friends, some of whom are memoirists, about what it means to write about our own lives when we can't remember anything that mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, for me, I turn to fiction. And the reason I call it speculative is because some of this book is rooted in the sort of geographies and timeline of my own family. And even some of the, like, grains of truth about you know, my ancestors. But, you know, for example, my great grandmother was from a shtetl called Rupschitz. Um, and it was known for this badchen who came from there, which I did not previously know, but a badchen is like a, a wedding jester mm -hmm. who um, in some Hasidic communities, they, you know, they're still badchens, um, but they work to sort of like MC the wedding. And it's like, this complicated, erudite, dark humor, light humor, like it's a mix. Um, but because this town was known for this one badchen, I I thought about like, you know, I laugh very loudly. I descend from this like village that's known for this jester. And so what if like, what if there's this sort of lineage of laughter that I, that I come from, which is where City of Laughter came from as a title. And so it's nothing, I mean, it's nothing to do with the with the actual place, um, with my actual family, but um, I was able to lean into the imaginative space, not only of talking about my own lineage, but also like this this 
um, shtetl that is, you know, certainly gone at this point. Um, and from the grain of truth that I had about it, just sort of celebrating it as like a as a vibrant place with like lots of laughter and lots of um, lots of humanity. I love that. You know, being able to like dip your toes into the speculative fiction world that kind of allows you to stretch, you know, the truth a little bit and not have yourself sort of commit to the the truth of like what a memoir offers or what a memoir, I guess, requires is that you sort of stick to the facts. Um, but yeah, it sounds like to echo what Harry said, it sounds like a great book. I can't wait to check it out. And everyone else should check it out January 16th, wherever you get your books. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Jews on Film. You can follow us on all the social medias at Jews on Film or Jews on Film Pod. You can email us with comments or suggestions at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Shabbat shalom. Bye-bye. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.